And we finished the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus gives a new and a fuller meaning to the law of Moses. He said, Moses said, or you heard of old, but I say unto you. And Jesus sort of brought out the deeper meaning of the law, especially for those that are his followers. Those who were followers of Moses kept the law on its surface. But he said he wanted his followers to keep the law even at a deeper level. At the heart level. You can do a lot of things on the surface, and your heart can be so far away from worshiping God that all you're doing is going through the motions. And Jesus said, you know, you need to really have a pure heart, pure motives. So now, in chapter 6, he turns to personal piety. And he deals with three areas. First, almsgiving. Giving to the poor, that's verses 1 through 4. Then prayer, verses 5 through 15. And then fasting, verses 16 through 18. And each one of these acts of piety has a different focus. Giving to the poor, the focus is outward. Prayer, the focus is upward. And in fasting, the focus is inward. It affects us. Today we're going to look at two of those. We're going to look at the almsgiving and the prayer, and next week we'll look at the fasting and we'll move on. But because of time, we won't, don't want to go more than these verses. So let's look at this almsgiving first, and look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Jesus says, take heed, which means this is a warning. He needs to warn us of something, and there's a reason he needs to warn us, because we need to be warned. And here's what he says. Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen of them. Now that phrase in the New King James, which is charitable deeds, is translated in other versions as acts of righteousness, which is a better translation. Because the Jews of old believed that giving, into the, giving to the poor made one righteous in God's eyes. If you said, I'm a follower of God, and you didn't give to the poor, you were only kidding yourself. To be a righteous person meant that you did give to the poor. In fact, in the Old Testament, when God established Israel as a nation after they came out of Egypt, He told them how they were to live. They were not to live like the Egyptians. Here's how you're to live. You're to live as a new society under different rules, and one of the things you're to do is take care of the poor. Don't live like the heathen nations who just were the elites, take care of themselves and everyone else is left out in the cold. So, if a person was following the Ten Commandments, they'd come out of Egypt, they were a Jew in name, at least, and by birth, but they weren't doing these things, they were not righteous before God. So now Jesus takes that concept and he says, but watch out when you do those things that you don't do them, look at this, before men to be seen by them. Don't do it to be seen by them. He's not so much concerned about the act of giving to the poor. We should all do that. Everybody would agree with that. He's concerned about the motive behind the giving. And notice that phrase, to be seen by them. It's very interesting. The word is uh, theonthone, from which we get our word theater. Don't do it as a performance. 
Don't give to the poor like you're on the stage waiting for applause after you've done your act. And that's the way many of the Jews in Jesus' day gave. They gave to the poor, but they did it for what? If somebody would see them and they made sure they did it openly and uh, in a, uh, with, with flair so that people would notice that. It was like a stage performance. So Jesus isn't forbidding the act of kindness. In fact, he would want you to perform acts of kindness. He says, but you need to make sure that you don't, look, you don't do it for self-glory. You don't do it for, for self-praise. And then look what he says. The negative consequences there in, at the end of verse 1. He says, otherwise, you do it for human applause, otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. So you have a choice. You can either get the applause of men by giving to the poor in such a way that you get recognized, or you can get the applause of God, but you can't have both. You can only get one or the other. And we're going to see how Jesus fleshes this out. Okay? So now look at the application. Look what he says in verse 2. Therefore, here's the bottom line on this thing. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed or you do an act of righteousness, which means giving to the poor, first negatively, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. So here, first of all, he says, therefore, in light of verse 1, let me tell you how not to give. When you do something that's a righteous act, or a spontaneous act, of kindness, or giving to the poor, don't do like the hypocrites do, and blow the trumpet. Is that what he says there? Yeah, I think he says something like it. Do not sound a trumpet as the hypocrites do. Then when everyone's looking, now you reach in and you pull out the $100 bill and you put it in the collection plate or you give it to the poor person. So what he's really saying, he's not saying literally blow a trumpet. He's using the word trumpet as a metaphor. What he's saying is, don't blow your own horn. Don't go around doing good things and then letting everybody know about it. Don't do it for the applause of men as a stage performance. Like, you're, don't make a show of it. Uh, some commentators think that this trumpet refers to the collection plate that they had in the temple. <clears throat> and uh, the way they took offerings in the temple. Remember the story of the widow's mite? It says the rich people went in and they threw their money into the offering plate and it clanged. It made a lot of noise. And everyone looked up. So, ooh, a lot of coins went in there. It filled, filled out two dozen Easter eggs for Sandy's kids. I took two bags of Easter eggs for Sandy's kids. And I would have taken a third, but they ran out of them. <clears throat> yeah. So anyway, uh, figured you might as well make the application. <laughs> but some people think that it means uh, the way the Pharisees would throw money into the collection plate in the temple. And those collection receptacles were called trumpets. And they had a big opening like a trumpet. You know, have a trumpet. But, you know, when you blow, the place that you blow in is very small. 
And so it would have a big opening at the top, like this, and then it would go down real small. So when you put the money in, it would go down, but you couldn't get your hand in to, to take any out. Once it got in there, it was too late. And people would throw it in and it would clang and people would look up. Uh, but that's not what this means. That's, that's a good, <laughs> it's nice to say that. But this isn't taking place in the temple. Where's it taking place? What's that? In the synagogues. And they didn't have those kind of collection plates in the synagogues. And in where? The streets. <laughs> this is saying when you give to the poor, when you give alms to somebody who's begging, and in this context it would be somebody who is a child of God who needs help and you help them. Don't blow your own horn. Don't do it for show. Look what he says. Assuredly, at the end of verse 2, if you do it that way, assuredly I say to you, they, that's the Pharisees, the hypocrites, they have their reward. If you blow your own trumpet, guess what? You've got your reward. And that phrase, they have their own reward or they receive their own reward, is a very interesting phrase. It comes from one Greek word, which means receipt. Receipt. So if somebody pays you something, let me pay you for this service, then guess what you do? You write them a receipt. And you sign your name to the receipt, which means you've been paid in full. And if you go out and blow your own horn when you give to the poor, guess what? And you do it for them to see you, guess what? You've been paid in full. And if you're paid in full, how much is left? Nothing. So there's nothing for God to give you. You don't get a reward from God. You've been paid in full. You've just signed a receipt over and said, I gave, and now I've signed. Oh, I've been paid in full. There it is. Boy, what'd you pay, huh? So now we have the contrast. Look at verse 3. But when you do a charitable deed, in contrast to the hypocrites, when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Meaning, do it without forethought. The emphasis there is on the word you. It's a contrast between the way we do it and the way the hypocrites do it. Now notice... He says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. This is a figure of speech as well. Because guess what? My left hand doesn't have a brain. And my right hand doesn't have a brain. Does it? No. It's not like, it doesn't mean don't let your left hand catch your right hand doing something as if they have two separate brains. It just simply means when you do something, uh, do it in such a way that it's not obvious to everybody around you. You just do it because that's what you're to do. So this is the right way to give right here to somebody who's needy. Now, guess what? Either way, it's important. There's one common denominator in all this. Is that we're to give charitable deeds. We're to do, to do charitable deeds and we're to give to the poor. Even if you do it for the wrong motive, guess what? When you give... The person you give it to is helped. So don't say, well, if I can't, you know, do it this way, then I won't do it at all. 
And guess what? There are people that are like that, aren't they? If they don't get recognized, then they won't give. Jesus would even, Jesus is glad when the hypocrites give. At least the poor are getting helped. It's just they're not, the only reward they're going to get in return, the hypocrites, is the applause of the crowd. See? But either way, we should be giving. But, you know, for us, we should give with the, wrong, with the right motive. And this is why it always goes back to blessed are the pure in heart. What is your motive for doing something? Now look at the purpose in all this. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing when you give, verse 3, verse 4, that your charitable deed or your giving of alms may be in secret. And that your Father, who sees in secret, will himself reward you openly. So it means when you do it, do it in such a way that it goes unnoticed. It doesn't mean that you have to do some hide your giving. It just means you do it in a... Uh, in a way that goes unnoticed, but guess what? It might go unnoticed by those around you, but it doesn't go unnoticed by God. It might go unnoticed by your left hand, <laughs> if you put it that way, but it doesn't go unnoticed by God, and God will do something. What does He do in verse 4? He will reward you openly. So, in a sense, some translations don't have openly, but it means that you're going to get your reward from God. And most likely, your reward from God is going to be open, and that's why the translators added the word openly. Your reward is going to be here on earth. Not in heaven that you get this reward. This reward is going to be a reward that you get on earth while you're still alive. God will reward you in ways that you can't even imagine if you do things the right way. <clears throat> so, if I could summarize this whole thing, I'd say, you know how you should give? You should give like Jesus does. You know how you shouldn't do it? You shouldn't do it like Hyacinth does. Remember Hyacinth? <laughs> Keeping up appearances? Yes. Huh? <laughs> Poor husband or her, you have to do it. She wants to keep up appearances. She wants to make sure that when she does something good, everybody in the world knows about it. She trumpets it to everybody. Guess the only reward Hyacinth gets is from those around who, around her who don't know her. Once they know her, they despise her. So I guess if we wanted to use a contemporary example in fiction of a hypocrite, it would be Hyacinth. We know we like Hyacinth. She's not a bad person. It's just that she's she's misguided. You know. She wants credit for everything. So how would you do it? Well, help people and help them for the right reason. Okay. Now, now we go to prayer. Okay. The second, the second act of piety. Prayer, verse five. Notice, first of all, the wrong way to pray. Okay. It's how Jesus usually does things. And when you pray, not if you pray, but when you pray, it's assumed that you'll do it, you shall not be like the hypocrites. There's the word hypocrites again. Remember, that's the word that speaks of a person who wears a mask, an actor. In the ancient times, you know, they didn't get dressed up like we do elaborately, but everybody put, the, they put on different masks, and so one person could play different parts. They put on the mask of this person, put on the mask of the king, put on the mask of the joker, and so forth. 
and they played a part. They wore a mask. That's not who they were underneath. The hypocrites gave money to the poor, but guess what? Underneath they weren't charitable. They wanted to get more, more they wanted to get a lot on their return. So they wanted to be seen, they wanted that reward. They were not really giving people. They gave, but they weren't giving people. They were playing an act. And the same thing with prayer, Jesus says, when you pray, you shall not be like the those who are praying, but really that's not part of them, like the hypocrites. For they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets. Wow. Notice how they like to pray. Standing in the synagogues. And on the corners of the streets. That means they like to pray being seen. So when we pray in our particular church, if you're on the first floor, they say, put down the kneelers. And guess what? We all put down the kneelers. But how about if one person stood up and went like this? Why would they do that? Well, I can't judge the motives, but I know one thing. They'd be seen. And there'd be a lot of people come over to them afterwards, and that would be their reward, probably. <clears throat> Other people would hear them pray, but I don't know if God would hear them pray. So, here are people that are praying standing up in the synagogue or on the street corners. Now, Jews pray three times a day. Nine in the morning, at noon, and three in the afternoon. That's how Daniel prayed. That's how every Jew prayed. Peter and John, they go to the temple in Acts chapter 3 and 4, and they're going there, it says, at the ninth hour, which means 3 in the afternoon. And they were going there for the hour of prayer. The temple was called, Jesus said, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Remember when Jesus said that? But this isn't talking about the temple, is it? It's talking about the synagogue. Remember the the sinner who goes in and says, Oh God, he wouldn't even lift his eyes. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Who was in the back? Pharisee, Oh Lord, oh Lord. I'm glad I'm not a sinner like that person. Say so he wouldn't be seen. So, but if you couldn't get to a synagogue, where did you pray on at nine, noon, and three? Well, you do like the Muslims do. Muslims have their little mat. <laughs> they do the same thing. And uh, so you would just pray where you were. And what you would do, instead of the Muslims, you know, when they pray, they face Mecca, don't they? But the Jews, when they prayed, and there wasn't a synagogue around, they'd pray where they were, but they would face the temple. They would face Jerusalem. And that's one thing to stand there and just pray for a moment. But it's another thing to stand on the street and let everybody know what you're doing. It's one thing sort of to get off in Starbucks three in the afternoon if you were a Jew in the first century. They had Starbucks back then, I think. And you just got down there and you got a cup of coffee and you sat down and you sort of faced the temple and you prayed. No one know what you're doing. Like you're just drinking a cup of coffee. But these people would get up there and they would put on a big performance. You said, you don't have to put on a performance. This isn't a stage play. I think about the Jews praying at the Wailing Wall very orthodox Hasidic Jews. And they, they're praying at the wailing wall. And guess what? All the tourists are there watching them. They say, aren't they devoted? Well, they may be devoted. I don't know that. I don't know their hearts. But guess what? They may not be devoted, some of them. Because 
They're doing it in public. And everyone sees it. And everyone usually makes a good comment on it. Even Pope John Paul II, when he went to Jerusalem, he had to go to the Wailing Wall and he had to put in a little prayer on a piece of paper and put it in the cracks. And it was covered all over the world. And they said, John Paul goes to the Wailing Wall. It was on national news. Well, Jesus said, you know, when you pray, you need to, you need to do a, a motive check. Why are you praying? Don't do it like the hypocrites. And the only people Jesus ever referred to as hypocrites in the Bible were the Pharisees. Very religious, pious people, but they had some wrong motives. And look what he says in verse 5. He says, They do it that, notice right toward the end of that verse, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. If that's what you want, if you want to pray and just get the applause, you won't get your prayer answered, but you will get a reward, and this will be it. Now the right way to pray. Verse 6. But you, when you pray, go into your room, some translations say, go into your closet, And when you've shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. Now, again, he's not saying to go into a literal closet. Uh, Some translations say storeroom. The only room in the house of the average peasant in Bible times that had a door was the storeroom or the closet. That's where you kept all your perishable goods. And there was a door there. and uh, But he's not saying literally do that. <clears throat> Any more than literally take a trumpet. He's just saying, when you pray, do it in such a way that it goes unnoticed. But guess what? There's one person there who sees what you're doing secretly. And that's the Father. And that's what he's saying here. So our worship, in a sense, should be for his eyes only. Uh, when we're praying. And now he gives us the specifics there. Look at verse 7. The specifics. First, the wrong specifics. The wrong way to pray. And when you pray, do not use repetitions as the heathen do. Now he goes outside of Judaism, outside of God's people, and he talks about the people of who have false religions. And he says, here's how they pray with vain repetitions. Now, the fact that he has to warn them not to pray with vain repetitions means something. It means that they are praying with vain repetitions. Some of them are doing it, or he wouldn't have to say, don't do it. (laughs) If you're not doing something, I don't have to warn you, do I? So it shows that there was a tendency, even for the Jews, to follow this type of prayer ritual, which were vain repetitions, which means long-winded or verbose, or heckling God, pestering God, repeating a single prayer over and over and over again, like the heathen do. Now we know that even today, heathen do this. Uh, Many of the Hindu religions have mantras. And they just repeat this mantra over and over and over again. The Hare Krishnas do this. They have a mantra. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Rama Krishna, Rama Krishna, Rama Rama Rama, Hare Hare Hare. They do that 20 times and they have to do it 108 times. 
times 20 every day. That he says, don't do it that way. Uh, the Tibetan Buddhists have prayer wheels. Prayer wheels are cylinders that sit on spindles and the wind blows them and they just spin around and around and around. And on that prayer wheel is a mantra or a prayer. And so when the wind hits it, it just spins around. That represents you praying. You don't even have to use your own breath on that one. <laughs> but it's still obeying repetition. So Jesus says, stop doing that. Don't, don't do that. That's how the heathen pray. Trying to manipulate God. See. He says why they do that. Look in the, in the middle of verse 7. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. But guess what? They're not heard for their many words. They are thinking amiss. Therefore, now watch, here's that therefore, you saw it again up in verse 2, here's going to be the application. Therefore, do not be like them. For your Father knows the things that you have need of before you Ask Him. The Father knows the things that you have need of before you utter the first word. So why would you utter a thousand words? Then you say, well, if God knows everything that we have need of, then why do we pray? Seems superfluous. Because God has chosen to do some things for you only when you do pray. <laughs> yeah, he knows your needs. But guess what he says? And I want it. I want to supply your needs. But I want you to ask me. I want you to make the request. I want to see that you depend upon me. I want to see that you uh, have faith. So, James says, we have not because we what? That's not. So God says, yes, I want to hear from you. You are my child. Can you give me a call once in a while? Let me know how things are, what you need, but you don't have to keep asking over and over and over and over and over again because I'm your father and you're my child. So, uh, we should pray, but don't have to keep praying over and over and over and over and over again. Now look what he says. The right way to pray. Verse 9. In this manner, therefore, pray. Now here's how we're to do it. And he's going to give us the specifics. And I'm going to break down this prayer into different phrases here. Okay? So let's look at the first one. Here's how you're to pray. Number one, our Father in heaven. Now, a couple things. Let's just look at that phrase, our Father in heaven. And notice the first thing you're to do is acknowledge God as Father. Okay? The Jews didn't really not have a concept of God as Father. There was maybe three or four times God's mentioned as a Father of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, but for the most part, Jews didn't see God as Father, but the Romans did. And this is where we really miss out when we really don't understand what was going on in the Roman Empire during the time of Jesus. The Romans believed that the god Jupiter, that was their name for the Greek god Zeus, was the creator God, and they believed that he was Father. They called him the Father God. So, what does Jesus say? We're going to recognize Yahweh. We're going to recognize Jehovah as the Father. We're rejecting 
the Roman ideology, the Roman philosophy, that Jupiter is God. So our father is Yahweh, the Jewish God is father, not the Roman God. So that's number one. Romans could say this, every good and perfect gift comes down from the father of lights. Did you ever hear that verse before? Every Roman could say that. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of Lights. But when they're talking about the Father, who are they talking about? Jupiter. Zeus. So, Jesus says, well, that's not the Father God. The Father God is the God of the Jews. Now notice he says, our Father, not my Father in this situation. When we approach God, we don't approach Him just one-on-one and claim a selfish relationship with Him. We realize that we're part of a bigger family. the people of God. And so we recognize Him as our Father. It speaks, by the way, sometimes of collective prayer, praying together as a group of people, not just as an individual. So who's Jesus talking to? to, When Jesus gives this teaching, is He talking to one person or is He talking to a group of people? group of people. It's a Sermon on the Mount. There are all kinds of people sitting down there. Here's how you pray. And so He's saying you need to recognize that God is our Father, and he's not just my father, we're part of a larger family, and we recognize him. He may even be talking about a collective prayer at this point. We're just not sure. But then look what the next phrase. Hallowed be thy name. And the word, the concept of name means, represents the person's uh, character. It's the person himself. If you say Allen Street, you see me. You see the person. It's not my, it's my name, but guess what it represents? Me. Myself. You know. And so this represents the person of God. And how we to look at God. We're to we're to respect God. We're to honor God. We're to reverence God. We're to treat God as holy. We're to treat God as a little child treats a father with great awe and respect. So he says you need to respect the God God when you pray. You just don't come to God flippantly. You come to God with some sort of respect and giving the dignity that He deserves. The third phrase, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now notice, this is the first petition. This is the first thing that we're to ask for in the prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That phrase, your kingdom come and your will be done, are parallels. They mean exactly the same thing. So, Where is his will to be done? Where is the kingdom to come? It's to come where? On earth. You see, on earth. So this is a prayer that God will one day bring his kingdom on earth and it will be a universal kingdom. Everyone will come under his rule. His will will be done universally just as right now it's being done in heaven. His will is being uh, done, done in heaven. Everybody that's in heaven is doing God's will. Do you know that? There are no sinners in heaven that are sick, continuing to sin. Only redeemed sinners. And all the angels are doing God's will. Right now. And the first prayer that we should petition, we should make, is that one day God's will and kingdom will come on earth. Universally, just as it is in heaven. That's why the believers would say, even so, come Lord Jesus. That's why Paul, at the end of Corinthians, and we also see it in Revelation, ends with Maranatha, which is, even so, come, come now. 
That should be our prayer that God would set his kingdom in its fullness uh, on earth. And then the next section, petition, or clause, or phrase number four, is give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Now notice the switch there. Do you notice that? Verses 9 and 10 are addressing the Father and deal with the Father. Hallowed His name, His kingdom. But notice when you get to verses 11 onward, the focus now switches to us. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, Has God ever given daily bread to anybody? Can you think of a time when God ever gave daily bread to somebody? Yeah, the man every day he gave bread. You think God was more concerned with the Jews than he is you? You think he's more concerned with Old Testament, Old Covenant saints than he is New Covenant saints? Has Jesus ever fed people bread? Yeah, 5,000, 4,000. Why did he do it? Because they had a need. God's concerned with your physical needs. We always think God's concerned with our spiritual needs. He's concerned with your physical needs. The kingdom is going to come on earth. There's going to be trees that are blossoming. There's going to be a harvest every month. (laughs) He's concerned with you physically. He's going to raise your body from the dead. He's concerned with you physically. And He's concerned with you physically now. Between now and the time the kingdom comes in its fullness, He's concerned with you physically. And He wants to meet your needs. Give us this day. What day? Now. Today. Last us for 24 hours. Can you trust God for 24 hours? Can you trust Him for today? That's all we have to do. We don't know what tomorrow is going to have, what's going to happen to us tomorrow, do we? It'll be a nuclear explosion, we'll all be out of here. But what? Can we trust Him for today? The Romans trusted Jupiter for today. Oh, Jupiter was the great patron. The pater. He was the father. The father of the Roman Empire. And through Caesar, he made sure that the citizens of Rome were taken care of. Caesar sponsored circuses and feast days when the government supplied bread for everybody and meat for everybody. They had holidays that celebrated the Caesar's birthday. It was the New Year. It was New Year's Day in Rome. Caesar's birthday, and. The government provided food for everybody that day. That's why the Romans believed that Jupiter took care of his people. Does our God take care any less of his people? There were patrons that were under Caesar who took care of a group of people around them and they would sponsor banquets and feed the people. There were thousands of banquets that were going on every day in Rome and it was supplied by some patron who was loyal to the person above him who was loyal to the person above him who was loyal to Caesar who was loyal to Jupiter it was all coming down from this great father God to all the people of Rome a tremendous welfare system where people were getting cheese and bread every day and he says when you pray you recognize that the God of Israel is the father and you ask him to take care of your physical needs it's important. Now look at this next phrase. Verse 12. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our 
debtors. Or to the same degree that we forgive our debtors. Or just like we forgive our debtors. How many of us would be forgiven of anything if God ever carried that out? Lord, forgive me of my debt as, or to the same degree, or just like I forgive others. Some of us are holding grudges against people and we think God's going to forgive us? That word debt speaks of obligation, doesn't it? If I say I'm in debt, that means I'm obligated to somebody. I'm obligated to God. I have obligations to God. Well, I don't have to pay for them. I need to be relieved of those debts. God says, well, I am going to relieve you of your debts just as you relieve other people of their debts. Debt deals with monetary, the monetary system, doesn't it? Notice in Luke it says, forgive us our sins, doesn't it? But in Matthew he says, debts. Very interesting. Remember one of the things that I said that God required of the Jewish people? I said this for a couple weeks. When he brought them out of the exodus, uh, out of Egypt, he said, I don't want you to be like the other nations. If there are people who need help, help them. If they need a loan, loan it to them better. Now, when you loan somebody something without interest, they're in debt to you. And you know what God said? Every seven years, you're to, you're to forgive that debt. And every 50 years, you have the year of Jubilee, and everybody who's had collateral and everything, they all get their collateral back. They all get their land back. Everything starts over every 50 years, just like that. Right back where it was. So the person's family who lost their land 50 years ago, 50 years later, gets it all back. All starts back at step number one. The Jews knew that they were required to forgive debts. That's how the nation of Israel was to operate. Even churches operate like that, too. Maybe he is making that analogy between, hey, if you can't forgive a monetary debt that somebody owes you, on what basis do you want me to forgive even the greater debt? <laughs> Remember Paul when he writes to Philemon about the slave of Nessimus? He says, whatever he owes you, whatever he owes you, just write that to my account. Uh, by the way, uh, don't forget what you owe me. Uh, so when in reality, what, he was, what was he saying? Write it off. See, so we need to be looking at this uh, more literally in this case as sort of somewhat of an analogy is that we should forgive people who are obligated to us, whether it's monetary, whether it's sin, whether they've done us wrong, it doesn't really matter what it is. But don't, don't knock the money out of that. They may even be obligated to you financially. In the church. I'm not talking about people out there. I'm not talking about business deals out there. Somebody has borrowed from you. Maybe he wants you to forgive. You need to think through that. And then God says, he will forgive us our debts. And then look what it says. The next phrase, verse 13. And do not lead us into temptation. Don't get us in a spot where we're bound to fall. That should be our prayer. I think Jesus said that because, guess what? The Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Remember that? 
And it was not a good situation. He says, when you pray, say, oh, Lord, don't leave me in the temptation. Don't put me in that kind of a spot. But, you know, you may end up in that spot. And God may do that. I don't know what he's going to do with you. So he says, but deliver me from the evil one or deliver me from evil. If I get in a pickle, get me out of the pickle. Don't abandon me. Don't leave me there to fight alone. Rescue me. Okay? Deliver me from the devil. And then you have this doxology here. At the end of verse 13. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now I'm going to tell you that particular little section called the doxology. Uh, that part of the verse is not found in any manuscript prior to the 5th century A.D. That little section, the doxology, is not found in any manuscript prior to the 5th century A.D., which means what? It was added by some scribe. Why? Because he thought that would be a good little way to end the prayer. And you know something? It's true. That's a true statement, but it's probably not part of the text. But we can say yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, amen, and be making an absolutely clear statement. And then finally, the reason to forgive. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Sort of reciprocal type of relationship or analogous. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, if you do not forgive men, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father what will not forgive you. That's one of the hard statements in Scripture. That means it's so hard that it blows your mind to try to. You want to you want to change that. <laughs> That's what it means. You want to say if you do not forgive men their trespasses, you might be in danger of God not forgiving you. But Jesus didn't say it. He said what? God will not forgive you. So guess what we all need to do? We need to forgive. How many times? Seven? <laughs> and when we forgive, you know what? We act just like God. When we forgive, we act just like God. We're doing the loving thing. Next week we pick up at Verse 16, and we go into the fasting, and we'll probably go down pretty much to the end of that chapter. Father, we thank you for our lesson. These are hard lessons. These are beyond anything that we can conceive. These are beyond things that we want to do deep down inside. We want praise. We want a pat on the back. We want people to say they've done something good for another person. And that's just our human nature. We don't want to forgive, but we want forgiveness. So, Lord, help us to live like Jesus. Help us to reflect your character. Help us to do things secretly. Not for show, but for your eyes only. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.